Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. Before we get started on the Quick Hits, the EM Cases course in February 2021 will be a virtual conference. Now, the beauty of going virtual is that the small group roundtable discussions with your favorite EM Cases guest experts are perfectly suited for Zoom breakout rooms. This isn't going to be lecture-type videos one after the other. Those are really hard to pay attention to virtually. This is going to be as interactive as the in-person course that we've been doing for the last six years. Our ED program at the University of Toronto has also developed this amazing online simulation setup, so we're going to do group simulations virtually as well. And we've got a superlative lineup for you, including many of the superstars that appear on EM Quick Hits, like Andrew Petrosoniak, Sarah Gray, and Justin Morgenstern, just to name a few. Okay, now on to the Quick Hits. So we had age-adjusted D-dimer to rule out PE, which works quite well. Now we've got a new adjusted D-dimer. This time it's clinical pretest probability adjusted D-dimer. So... For the best of Rebel EM this month, my friend Salim Rizé is going to talk about how the recent PEG-ED study shows promise for adjusting the cutoff of D-dimer according to your pretest probability. Now, why is PEG promising? Because, as you'll see, it reduces CT utilization without missing significant PEs. Oh, and I forgot to mention about the EM Cases course. Tickets will go on sale on November 10th. Anton reached out to me about a video I made recently about a clinical trial called the PEGGED trial. And this was a paper by Kieran C. et al. Diagnosis of Pulmonary Embolism with D-dimer Adjusted to Clinical Probability, published in the New England Journal of Medicine 2019. The question these authors were essentially trying to answer is, does a probability-based D-dimer threshold safely exclude the diagnosis of PE without further imaging? Now, eligible patients were assessed for pulmonary embolism using a seven-item Wells clinical prediction rule to categorize patients into a clinical pretest probability. And they were broken into three groups, a low-risk Wells score, which was zero to four, a moderate risk, which was four to six, or high, which was greater than six. Now, what the authors did here is in the low-risk group, They set their D-dimer threshold to 1,000 nanograms per ml, and this is an FEUs for the low clinical pretest probability group. Now, oftentimes, most people would set this at 500, but for this study, they took it up to 1,000, so they doubled their cutoff. For the moderate risk group, they left things exactly the same. They set their D-dimer cutoff threshold at 500 nanograms per ml, again in FEUs, And this is typically what we would do for moderate risk group patients. Now, in the high clinical pretest probability group, these patients went directly to imaging. There was no D-dimer testing. And we all know that D-dimers in the high risk group has a high rate of false negative. So that's probably appropriate in what I'm at least doing in my practice. Now, for patients in the low and intermediate risk groups, For the D-dimer threshold that was set, if they fell below this, then they were discharged without chest imaging. 
So this was just over 2,000 patients, and the primary outcome was incidence of venothromboembolism during a 90-day follow-up period among patients with low or moderate clinical pretest probability and a negative D-dimer test. These patients basically received no anticoagulation therapy and were sent home and followed up. Now, just so you know some of the numbers, patients that were in the low-risk group was just over 1,700 patients. Patients in the moderate risk group was just over 200 patients, and in the high risk group was only about 47 patients. For patients in the low risk well score with a D-dimer threshold cutoff of 1,000, there was 467 of them that had a D-dimer under 1,000, and they missed zero venothromboembolisms at 90 days in this group. In the moderate risk group, remember we used a cutoff of 500, and this was only 40 patients in this group that had a D-dimer threshold of less than 500. And again, they missed zero venothromboembolisms at 90 days in this group. So overall, this was zero missed venothromboembolisms out of 1,325 patients with adjusted threshold D-dimer in the low and intermediate risk groups. Now, if that's not impressive enough, the thing that really caught my attention was that there was a significant reduction in chest imaging by using this strategy. If we were to use a standard strategy where we used a cutoff of 500 for our D-dimer in the low-risk group, we would probably see T-scan about 51.9% of this population. But with this new pegged strategy where we use clinical probability, this was reduced to 34.3%. This is a near 20% reduction in CT imaging. Now, I always like to be fair and balanced in my assessment of studies. And I think the first thing is that we have to understand this was a really healthy group of patients. I mean, only 13% of the population was in the moderate risk group and only 2% in the high risk group. And then the second thing is, is that pregnant patients were excluded. And so we have to remember that we don't use strategies like this in patients that were not studied in these trials. Now, this is not the first time we have seen some type of adjusted D-dimer. We have age-adjusted D-dimer, which, by the way, the American College of Emergency Physicians supports. There is the YEARS protocol, which has had now had several studies that have also showed very good promise. And now we have the PEG strategy, which is another clinical probability-adjusted D-dimer. So the bottom line here for me is that the use of a variable D-dimer threshold based on clinical pretest probability in the assessment of pulmonary embolism not only reduces chest imaging, but is ready for prime time. And this is something we should be talking about within our departments, within the EDs that we work in, and this is ready for widespread use. So if you see a relatively healthy population in your ED, it's probably worth using this PEG well score adjusted D-dimer to save your patients some CT radiation and also probably improve throughput in your ED. All right, next up is the brilliant Dr. Bork Tillman, ED intensivist. Now in the last EM cases quick hits number 22, he gave us part one of his take on what ED docs need to know about ARDS at about the 34-minute mark. Go back and listen to it if you haven't already. He gave us lowdown on oxygenation strategies, vent settings, proning, and using paralytic agents in vented ARDS patients. Here's part two on ARDS management in the ED with Bork Thielman. You've been treating the patients with ARDS for the past 30 minutes. 
you've placed them on high flow nasal oxygen and their sats are still in the 80s and they look like they're about to tire out. It appears to you this patient requires intubation. Now I want you to be aware, these patients will be physiologically challenging intubations and they're likely going to desaturate quickly. So ensure you have the right tools and the right expertise before you put them on the ventilator. However, the focus of this segment is what do we do for these patients after they are intubated. It can seem pretty overwhelming, especially if you're not familiar with ventilator settings. Thankfully, there are really only four common settings that you're going to need to deal with. The first two are PEEP and FiO2 to help with their oxygenation, and the last two are tidal volume and respiratory rate to help protect their lungs and clear CO2. So the first thing you're probably going to do after you intubate a patient is try and optimize their oxygenation. To do this, most commonly, we set them to 100% FiO2 while we work with their other settings. The key thing to remember is if we can optimize their PEEP, we may be able to reduce the amount of inspired oxygen they need. When I think of PEEP, I still like to use the balloon metaphor. If you think of inflating a balloon, when it's fully collapsed, it's really hard to get it open and it takes a lot of force. Likewise, if you over-distend the balloon, push as hard as you want, it's really hard to make it bigger, and if you do, you might just pop it. Instead, you want the balloon slightly inflated so it's easy to fill and empty. And that's what you're doing with PEEP. You're trying to slightly inflate the alveoli so they don't collapse down and stick together, but likewise, you don't want them so overfilled that they distend and rupture. Unfortunately, there's been lots of studies in trying to find ideal PEEP, but we don't have the tool yet. So what I do is I titrate my PEEP to clinical parameters. What that means is I look to see how changing PEEP improves their oxygenation, at the same time trying not to decrease the blood pressure too much, as sometimes with increasing PEEP, you can decrease their preload and also trying to ensure that the pressures inside the chest, measured by a plateau pressure on the ventilator, are not too high. Too high generally means above 30. If you're not very familiar with titrating PEEP, you can always look at the 2004 ARDSNET trial that tried to compare high versus low PEEP settings, and this gives you what's called a PEEP table that will at least introduce you to some first steps for PEEP titration. So after I've set a patient's PEEP and oxygenation, the next thing I'm going to do is decrease their tidal volume. If we look at all the literature around ARDS, one of the key findings is that low tidal volume is associated with improved outcomes. This is from the ARDSNET trial in the year 2000, where they showed if you use 6 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight, patients have a higher likelihood of surviving as compared if you ventilate them at 12 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight. Practically, this does mean you need to measure a patient's height and calculate their ideal body weight. So it is useful to have ideal body weight tables near a ventilator, as I'm sure not many people know these calculations off the top of their head. The other factor that you will quickly realize when you decrease someone's tidal volumes to six cc's per kilo it's pretty easy for them to become hypercapnic. So you can increase the respiratory rate to try and compensate for this. Just make sure you don't start breath stacking. Make sure you don't have the patient start breathing again 
before they fully exhaled. You likely are going to end up with a hypercapnic patient, but evidence has demonstrated that permissive hypercapnia is likely beneficial for these patients. So I would support their hemodynamics and protect their lungs with low tile volume ventilation. Now, it seems like when you discuss the management of a critically ill patient, you can't get by without discussing fluids. And ARDS is no different. In 2006, the FACT trial was done looking at both the use of Swan-Yans catheters, but also different fluid strategies. What they ended up showing was if you used a conservative fluid strategy, patients seemed to have a shorter time on the ventilator. However, this isn't as applicable to us in the early stages of management of ARDS. Usually when these patients present to hospital, they're acutely ill, and you're actively resuscitating these patients. So although in the long run, I am going to be trying to de-resuscitate them, usually in the first 24 to 48 hours, they are getting fluids. That being said, there are some other therapies we can do to try and benefit these patients. One of the biggest ones is prone positioning. This relates to the Proceva trial, which showed that if you place a patient with ARDS in the prone position early and for at least 16 hours, they have improved outcomes. Now, I don't know how many people you've proned in your emergency department, but that's pretty challenging to do. What that says to me is if a patient has bad ARDS, or I've had to intubate them, I want to get them to a location where they can be proned safely and easily. So these are patients I try and prioritize to get out of the emergency department. The final intervention that gets a lot of attention is paralysis. Paralysis used to be a fairly common therapy we would use when someone had moderate to severe ARDS. However, in the past year, there's been further evidence on this, which has demonstrated that routine use of paralysis doesn't seem to be beneficial in compared to good supportive care with sometimes even lower sedation. So in my practice, I no longer routinely use paralysis. Instead, if I cannot obtain low tile volume ventilation, those six cc's per kilo, with good sedation and good analgesia, then maybe I'll add on paralysis. And that's not because I think paralysis helps heals their lungs, but I want to protect a patient from having further harm to their lung from invasive ventilations. So when I think of a patient with ARDS who is on a ventilator, there are four key takeaways. First of all, low tidal volume ventilation. We know that high tidal volumes can be harmful to the lungs, and we want to protect these lungs while the patient is critically ill and healing. Second of all, to optimize their oxygenation, titrate the PEEP. Third, get them to a location where they can be safely placed in the prone positioning. And finally, I'm no longer routinely using paralysis, but if it's going to help me obtain low tidal volumes and protect a patient's lungs, then yes, I will add it on. So that's a bit about how to manage the vented ARDS patient in the ED, a bit about vent settings, fluid management, prone positioning, and paralysis. Next up, we have the best of EM docs with Britt Long and Michael Gottlieb. Now, not all that looks like pharyngitis is simple pharyngitis. There may be a pharyngitis mimic lurking that you don't want to miss. Pharyngitis is pretty common for us in the ED. Most patients with sore throat have something pretty straightforward, like viral pharyngitis or group A beta-hemolytic strep. Whether it's viral or bacterial pharyngitis, most of these patients get better with a very low risk of complications. 
But there are a couple of dangerous diseases that can mimic this condition. And this is where we can shine as emergency physicians. I'm Britt Long, and Mike Gottlieb and I are going to focus on four key mimics, epiglottitis, acute retroviral syndrome, retropharyngeal abscess, and peritonsor abscess. Prior quick hits episodes have covered Ludwig's angina, Lemire syndrome, and Kawasaki's disease. So we won't cover those here. Our first deadly mimic is epiglottitis. With increased vaccination against Haemophilus influenzae type B, this is much less common than it was 20 to 30 years ago. However, it still does occur, and it's important to keep this in our differential, particularly since we don't see this nearly as often. With Haemophilus influenza out of the way, staph and strep have taken over as the more common causes along with certain viruses. However, this can also be seen with unvaccinated patients. Patients can present with signs of airway obstruction, which can include difficulty talking or swallowing, drooling, or even strider as this worsens. Since the epiglottis is located in the anterior part of the throat, patients will generally prefer to sit up and lean forward, which is the classic tripoding position. This differs from retropharyngeal abscess, another mimic we'll discuss later, where they are usually more comfortable lying flat. Because kids have smaller and less rigid airways, they will typically get sick very quickly whereas adults may have a slower onset of symptoms. This is a big point. There is a huge range of symptoms. Children can have difficulty breathing, strider, and muffled or hoarse voice in 80% of cases, but they may also present with fever, sore throat, and anterior neck tenderness. Adults will present with odynophagia and sore throat in up to 100% of cases, fever in 26 to 90% of patients, and muffled voice, drooling, and strider in 15 to 80% of cases. The exam may show a normal or abnormal pharynx, and just because the patient has an infection in one location, like pharyngitis, doesn't mean that they can't also have epiglottitis. These patients can decompensate quickly. So if your patient is in respiratory distress or has signs of airway obstruction, get help fast. If you have anesthesiology or ENT available, call them. Avoid any interventions like labs, IVs, and imaging that may trigger them to worsen. Again, in these patients, getting them safely to the OR is key. If you do need to intubate them, you will want a double setup with a cricothyrotomy kit or, better yet, a bougie and a scalpel at the bedside. For more stable or unclear cases, you can start with a neck soft tissue x-ray, which will show a thickened epiglottis in over 80% of cases. If they can lie flat and are safe to leave the ED for a bit, then a CT can be helpful, though I prefer bedside ultrasound, which can help you identify this and other diagnoses without having them leave your ED. Your best test is nasopharyngoscopy, which allows you to directly visualize the epiglottis. The antibiotic of choice is ceftriaxone, but you could also use ampicillin sulbactam, clindamycin, or another third-generation cephalosporin. Consider adding vancomycin for MRSA coverage, And while there isn't great evidence for steroids, they may reduce inflammation and edema, so it's reasonable to include them as well. So those are some of the pearls and pitfalls about epiglottitis. The next pharyngitis mimic they're going to talk about is something called acute retroviral syndrome. Acute retroviral syndrome usually presents within the first couple months of a new HIV infection when the patient has high viral loads and is at the greatest risk of infecting others. Patients will present with fever or chills, fatigue, pharyngitis, rash, headache, and even generalized lymphadenopathy. Think about this disease if the patient has symptoms for over one week 
and ask about risk factors for HIV, like injection drug use and sexual practices. Rapid antigen testing is a better test in this stage, as antibodies may not have formed yet. Keep in mind that viral load testing may also be possible depending on your institution. If suspicious, or if you have a new diagnosis based on your testing, talk with your ID specialist. This has the potential to save lives and prevent further infection. The next mimic is peritonsillar abscess. This is a collection of perilymph fluid located between the tonsillar capsule and the posterior pharyngeal muscles. Patients can have fever, difficulty with or painful swallowing, throat fullness, voice change, drooling, or trismus. The diagnosis is often clinical with unilateral peritonsillar swelling with deviation of the tonsils and the uvula. However, if it's less clear, consider using your ultrasound to better assess it. This can be done by placing the endocavitary probe in the mouth and looking for a dark fluid pocket similar to skin abscesses. If you don't have an endocavitary probe or the patient has severe trismus, you can use a linear probe to look from the outside of the neck. Treatment should include pain control, antibiotics, and steroids. While some evidence suggests that certain smaller abscesses may not need drainage, most larger abscesses will need to be drained. The evidence does not suggest the difference between needle aspiration and incision and drainage, so use whichever technique you are more comfortable with. For needle aspiration, consider using your ultrasound to guide your needle in real time and make sure you fully collapse the abscess pocket. Our final mimic is retropharyngeal abscess, or RPA. This is a suppurative, deep-spaced infection of the neck or the potential space between the posterior pharyngeal wall and prevertebral fascia, which can then spread into the mediastinum. It's more common in kids and adults and often occurs after an upper respiratory infection, but it can also happen by direct inoculation after oropharyngeal trauma or things like laryngoscopy, endoscopy, or even dental procedures. Think about this in the patient with neck stiffness, torticollis, trismus, voice changes, or inability to tolerate oral secretions. Patients may also have bulging of the posterior pharyngeal wall. You have a couple of choices for diagnosis. Lateral neck x-ray may show a widened retropharyngeal space. The prevertebral space should be less than 7 millimeters at C2 and less than 14 millimeters at C6 in kids, and it should be less than 22 millimeters at C6 in adults. CT with IV contrast is probably your best imaging modality and can differentiate cellulitis and abscess, as well as look for spread into other areas. Once you have the diagnosis, the patient needs admission with antibiotics and ENT consultation. Love that pearl about epiglottitis patients preferring to be sitting up versus retropharyngeal abscess patients usually preferring to lie flat. And think about acute retroviral syndrome in patients presenting with pharyngitis plus prominent lymphadenopathy everywhere and who have been sick for more than a week. Ask those patients about HIV risk factors, work them up for HIV if you're suspicious. Then there's peritonsillar abscess, which should be drained by us in the ED. We've discussed the reasons before on EM cases. And I didn't realize that needle aspiration is just as effective as IND as long as the entire abscess is collapsed and drained. And remember the trick of cutting the plastic covering of the needle to one centimeter short of the needle length to prevent going too deep and hitting the carotid artery. As far as retropharyngeal abscess goes, the clue to the diagnosis is a change in neck mobility or pain with neck movement. 
Finally, Swami did a great quick hit on Lemire's, which should also be on your list, and in kids, Kawasaki. Next up, we've got Justin Hensley from EBM Gone Wild, who's going to talk about barotrauma. But before we get into that, a message from our sponsors. So Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system, can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. What Metricade does is they minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. Hi there, I'm Justin Hensley of EBM Gun Wild, and we're going to do a quick hit on barotrauma. Barotrauma, in this instance, is referring to diving injuries. Barotrauma exists because of Boyle's Law. Boyle's Law, simply stated, is P1V1 equals P2V2. What that means is that at one atmosphere, a unit of air would fill up one unit. But at two atmospheres, it now only fills up half of that unit. At three atmospheres, it's one-third, and at four atmospheres, it's one-fourth. This continues on as deep as you want to go. What this means functionally, in the sense of diving, is that anywhere there is air, you have to understand that that air can be compressed by the increase in pressure. So, in the sense of the face mask, if you create a vacuum in the space in front of your eyes, the things you think will happen absolutely will. You'll get blood rushing to the lids, causing edema. You can get fracturing of blood vessels in the conjunctiva, causing subconjunctival hemorrhages. You can get skin ecchymoses. You can get hyphemas even, or even orbital hemorrhages. This is why you're taught to blow out through your nose to equalize pressures in the mask. Other areas in and around the head that have air pockets include the sinuses. If you have any mucosal swelling in your sinuses that could prevent air from equalizing in them, as you go down and that pressure decreases and you get vacuums in your sinuses, when you go back up, you'll get the reverse, which will be an expulsion of that air, and then whatever blood or mucus or other exudate that has caused from that suction vent out through your nose and into your mask. This is why you'll see divers often use topical or oral vasoconstrictors to help prevent sinus barotrauma. Other areas with fixed and rigid air pockets include the external auditory canal. Normally it communicates with the outside world, but if you have a dry hood on that prevents that communication or a cerumen impaction, you can get a barotrauma event in your external auditory canal. This can lead to swelling, bleeding, or even tympanic membrane rupture. Tympanic membrane ruptures underwater are very bad. Moving further into the ear, we can discuss middle ear barotrauma. This is because the eustachian tubule, which normally equalizes pressure between the posterior pharynx and the middle ear, up into the level of the tympanic membrane, where it communicates to the external auditory canal, that will collapse when those vacuum events occur. If this happens, you can get ear pain and fullness, or a mild tinnitus, or diminished hearing even, or vertigo. Rare events can cause tympanic membrane ruptures if the suction in the middle ear is too much and the pressure on the outside forces the tympanic membrane in. The prevention of this 
is equalizing eustachian tubule before it gets blocked. Some people use decongestants to prevent this as well. Moving further into the ear, we can start talking about the inner ear and the barotrauma it can exhibit. So the oval window and the round window are two membranes on the inner ear labyrinth. If you rupture either of these, either through an overly forceful valsalva in an attempt to fix a eustachian tubule problem, or a rapid descent, you will get a roaring tinnitus. I'm not talking about a mild ringing in the ears. I'm talking about it sounds like a train is driving through your head. These people will almost 100% of the time get vertigo. Vertigo on land is uncomfortable. Vertigo underwater, where you can move in all six axes, and if you don't know which way is up, could lead to your death, is life-threatening. You definitely want to make sure that you don't experience vertigo underwater. There are some other squeezes that can happen that are a little more uncommon. Things like suit squeeze from a dry suit, which is a very thick rubber or neoprene suit designed to keep the water away from your skin because of very cold water. That air pocket can get compressed, leading to a transudation of blood through your skin, causing weird rashes and painful itching, ecchymoses. You can also get a tooth squeeze. So if you have an air pocket in your tooth, going down can cause that tooth to implode. Going up can cause it to explode, neither of which are comfortable, and you definitely don't want pain and bleeding in your mouth when your mouth is what's holding the regulator that provides you the life-giving oxygen. But when we're talking about barotrauma in diving, what we're really talking about is ascent barotrauma. That's when the air expands as we're going up. Yes, tooth squeeze has some ascent characteristics with it, but generally speaking, we're talking about pulmonary barotrauma. This is when you ascend without exhaling. It can happen in as little as 4 feet or 3.3 meters of water. Pressure forces little bubbles across those alveolar capillary membranes, leading to alveolar hemorrhages, chest pain, cough, or hemoptysis. It can lead to pneumomediastinum, which is the most common radiographic form identified. This can be asymptomatic or have chest pain, but they generally don't have respiratory distress. Sometimes they have subcutaneous emphysema, and the treatment of that is simple oxygen. But if it goes further and leads to pneumothoraces, which are less frequent, we know what pneumothoraces present as. Dyspnea, breathlessness, pleuritic chest pain, and with recompression-decompression cycles, as with diving, they can become tension pneumothoraces. Obviously, the treatment of that is very different than just simple oxygen. But the big one that we need to know about is arterial gas embolism. It's a major cause of death and disability among sport divers. Air bubbles enter the pulmonary venous circulation, where they then expand and block off arterial blood flow. Symptoms are almost always a nearly instant onset, where 5% of the people who exhibit this will die immediately, and 5% will die in the hospital. That's of the identified causes. There's definitely some reporting bias in the deaths, and there's likely hundreds and thousands of people who exhibit these and are asymptomatic and never die. The symptoms, though, are all across the map. Dizziness, vertigo, headaches, stroke symptoms, limb ischemia, myocardial infarction, anything that could present as any other type of emboli can be presented as an arterial gas embolism. It can be in the smallest toe of your non-dominant foot, or it can be in the largest blood vessel leading to your brain. Treatment of this, absolute definitive treatment, is a dive chamber. We don't usually have those on the boat, so until we get to a dive chamber, you are stuck with high flow oxygen, as high pressure as you can get, IV fluid to maintain cerebral perfusion pressures, 
And remember, we can't fly these people because any small change in pressure may lead to an expansion of the bubble even further. Finally, there's a few more rare kinds of ascent barotrauma that we sometimes talk about. Gastrointestinal barotrauma, which presents as abdominal pain because of swallowed gas that expands in volume, can lead to belching, flatulence, usually self-limiting. They get some rumbly grumblies in their tumbly, but sometimes it can cause perforations. Other more interesting rare ones are the alternobaric facial palsy, where an air bubble in the middle ear will compress and expose seventh cranial nerve, causing a facial palsy and some ear pain. You have to make sure that anybody that has stroke-like symptoms doesn't have an arterial gas embolism before you do a more conservative treatment of it like you would for this. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Justin. Next up from our CGEM Just the Facts series, we've got Hans Rosenberg with Dr. Peter Johns talking about how to assess the patient with constant vertigo. So this is not BPPV. This is the sometimes tricky distinction between a peripheral cause like labyrinthitis and more sinister central causes of vertigo like vertebral artery dissection, for example. This distinction is all in the detailed history and physical, which Walter Himmel described in EM Quick Hits 11. And actually, if you look in the comments section of that Quick Hits, Peter Johns has some very interesting insights. One of the deeper questions that I want to get into and what we have difficulty with is, what is the HINTS Plus exam and why is it so important in the emergency department? So the HINTS Plus exam is a series of four different bedside tests consisting of what kind of nystagmus a patient has, whether they have an abnormal test of skew, the head impulse test, and a bedside test of hearing. And in order to make the diagnosis of vestibular neuritis, you have to have all four of those components testing as a HINTS peripheral result. And if any of those components test as HINTS central, then you're worried about a central cause usually a stroke. And to the emergency physician like myself, who is not a vertigo expert, why is this such a key test to know well in the emergency department? Seeing someone with constant vertigo and nystagmus and difficulty walking is not an uncommon thing that we see in the emergency department. Luckily, most of those patients have vestibular neuritis and can be safely discharged home if you have a definitive diagnosis. The HINTS Plus exam is a way to make a definitive diagnosis so that you can avoid unnecessary testing or treatment with antiplatelet agents or unnecessary referrals, and you can send them home in a short length of time. Now, if the patient screens positive for central features or has a HINTS plus central result, what kind of workup should that patient receive? The best way to investigate them depends a little bit on their presentation. If they are having significant headache or neck pain, you might get a CTA to rule out a cerebral hemorrhage or vertebral artery dissection, but if they have isolated vertigo, you might want to get an MRI, preferably after 48 hours, as in the first 24 to 48 hours, MRI can miss a cerebellar stroke. So given that the MRI is much more accurate after 48 hours, should these patients be admitted to hospital for those 48 hours, or is some kind of outpatient very early follow-up appropriate? I think that if they have any central features when you screen, and in, in the paper we describe central features that would make you concerned about a stroke, such as um, uh, double vision or difficulty speaking with the dysarthria. If they have any of those, or if they test hints plus central, I think those people should be worked up in the emergency department and preferably admitted so that they can get an MRI 
either uh, if they do get one acutely in the first 24 hours and it's negative, I still think they should be admitted and observed until you can be more certain as to whether they've had a stroke or not. So we know what to do about the specific patient described in the paper, but how about those very difficult to figure out patients which have constant significant dizziness, difficulty walking, but no nystagmus? There was a recent paper, actually, in the Journal of Neurology, published online May 27th, 2020, by Machner, named Risk of Acute Brain Lesions in Dizzy Patients Presenting to the Emergency Room, Who Needs Imaging and Who Does Not? In that study, which they excluded people with medical causes of dizziness or the people who are cured BPBV, then they looked at people who are like quite concerning. And they found that if you had something that they described as the acute imbalance syndrome, which is patients who had constant dizziness and difficulty with balance, but no nystagmus, they found that if you did a delayed MRI on those people, 33% of them had an acute brain injury, or at least acute brain lesion. Most of them were ischemic strokes. So if someone has persistent dizziness and difficulty walking, you don't see nystagmus, that's not consistent with vestibular neuritis. I would be very concerned about those patients. I thought Walter had taught me everything you need to know about vertigo, but alas, now I know that MRI is not sensitive enough to rule out stroke until 48 hours after the insult. Great stuff. For the young EM cases listeners out there, and maybe for a few of the older docs, we have all the EM cases infographics and more goodies on the EM cases Instagram feed. So if you're on Instagram, join the more than 5,000 followers there and check out the EM cases Instagram page. Okay, last but not least on this EM Quick Hits episode, we have Justin Morgenstern, who's joined by Jeanette Wolf, who I know fondly from podcasting courses I've taught in the past. They're going to reveal the surprising differences in CPR delivery depending on the gender of the patient. For this episode of the EBM Quick Hits, I wanted to talk about a few papers that looked at the impacts of sex or maybe it's gender on the outcomes of cardiac arrest. But seeing as I obviously still get confused about the definitions of those terms, I thought that I should invite a world expert in the topic to help us out. Dr. Jeanette Wolf is an associate professor of emergency medicine at the UMass Medical School Bay State. And more importantly, for our purposes, she is an expert in the influences of biologic sex and gender on health. And she's also the host of the excellent Sex and Why podcast. Jeanette, thanks for joining me. It's so great to be here. Thanks, Justin. So let's just start with the basics. Can you remind me of the differences between sex and gender? You know, it's amazing to me how often in the media and even in scientific journals that we still interchange these terms. But in research, they actually mean two different things. Biological sex is an innate variable determined by our hormones and chromosomes, and our sex influences our physiology and our pathophysiology. Now, in most cases, biological sex can be easily categorized into male or female. Gender, on the other hand, is more socially constructed, and it's dependent upon the interface between an individual's gender identity and the societal norms and expectations in which they live. Now, unlike sex, gender is much more of a spectrum, and it's bookended by being a stereotypical man or a stereotypical woman. Now, the Canadian Institute of Gender and Health has come up with a saying which can be used to help us distinguish between sex and gender. Every cell has a sex. Every person is gendered. 
Oh, that's, that's brilliant. And it sounds simple enough, although I find it does tend to get more complicated in real life. I think maybe the most important question is, why would the average ED doc care about sex and gender? You know, that's a really great question. The bottom line is, is we all want to practice up-to-date medicine. In the last five years, the research in this area has exploded. Let me give you a few examples. The highest 30-day mortality from an ST elevation MI is actually in the subgroup of women under the age of 55. Now, I think most of us would find that pretty surprising because that's simply not the group we think about dying from a heart attack. Now, these women might be more vulnerable to death due to a greater number of cardiac risk factors or to different weights of those risk factors. For example, we already know that diabetes and smoking are actually greater risk for coronary artery disease in females than they are in males. Another great example is the use of the high-sensitivity troponin. There now have been a couple of studies that suggest high-sensitivity tropes versus conventional tropes may actually be more beneficial in helping to identify ischemia in females versus males. And at least part of this may be due to the fact that some of these high-sensitivity tropes have different sex-specific cutoff levels defining what's considered an abnormal value. And physiologically, this sort of makes sense, because on average, females have slightly smaller hearts than males, and they are also more likely to get distal microvascular disease, both of which can lead to a comparatively smaller troponin leak with ischemia. Now, those are examples of sex-based differences. And again, these are rooted in patients' physiology and their pathophysiology. But importantly, our gender can also influence our medical care and health outcomes. And that's because our gender can subtly influence our exposure risk or our preferences or how we access or are navigated through the medical system. And a great example of this is that paper we talked about last year about CPR differences between men and women. Yeah, so let's dive into one of these gaps that absolutely struck me earlier this year. So there was a study by Bluer and colleagues in Circulation, Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes in 2018, and it looked at data from 19,000 non-traumatic cardiac arrests as part of the Resuscitation Outcome Consortium group. Can you tell us a little bit about what they found? Sure. So their studies suggest that if you have a cardiac arrest at home and somebody is around, you have about a third of a chance of getting bystander CPR, and that the rates are similar regardless of whether you're a man or a woman. So this study suggests that if you collapse at home, there is no gender difference as to who gets CPR. Things seem to be a little different, however, if you collapse in public. Here, 45% of men versus just 39% of women receive bystander CPR. Now, at first glance, that 6% may not seem like such a big deal. But when you begin to consider the huge amount of people who collapse every year from a cardiac arrest, those numbers quickly become clinically relevant. They suggest that several thousand patients a year will or will not receive CPR based simply on their gender. Now, this study isn't perfect. It's from an observational data set, but it should make us all pause and think. Yeah, I think this is really important. Now, of course, as you say, EBM hat on, this is an association seen in observational data. So there could easily be some confounders in there that explain the results and we're not seeing. Now, you came across another study, a survey by Perman in Circulation 2019, that actually looked at reasons that people might be hesitant to perform CPR on a woman. Can you tell us briefly about those results? 
Yeah. So in this study, they used the Amazon Mechanical Turk platform to send a survey out to a bunch of folks and simply ask them, why do you think this gender difference in CPR exists? Now, understanding the limitations of any survey study, I still think there's value in this type of research because it gives us new starting points for future projects or potential interventions. So the survey results suggested three major themes that might be driving this gender difference. Number one, the potential of inadvertently touching a woman's breast, and at the extreme, a concern of an erroneous sexual assault charge. Number two, a belief that women may simply be more frail than men so that if you start CPR on them unnecessarily, they are more likely to be injured. And number three, a belief that men and women may simply collapse from different causes, in that the stereotype of who dies from a cardiac arrest is a man and not a woman, people may not appreciate that when a woman collapses that she too might be having a cardiac arrest. You know, I was pretty surprised by those results. I would have never guessed that people were afraid to start CPR because they thought that women were too frail. So, you know, it sounds like just teaching CPR is not going to be enough. We're going to have to get out there and dispel some myths as well. And I guess it's a good time to remind people of those Good Samaritan laws that would protect them from those potential sexual assault allegations. To sum up today's papers, women are less likely to get bystander CPR in the community, and we have a few guesses why. Now, these are not the only papers that show a significant difference between men and women when it comes to cardiovascular care. Women are also more likely to have a DNR order placed on their chart if they do survive to hospital admission, and there are also significant differences between men and women when it comes to STEMI care. I think the big takeaway for me, the real reason that I wanted to talk about these papers, is the fact that these gaps exist at all. I'm continuously blown away. The more that I look, the more it seems like sex and gender have huge impacts on our patient's health and the care that we give. Often, the only reason that we don't see it is because we don't bother to look. So for any researchers out there, make sure that you're including both men and women in your trial and looking for possible differences. Now, let's close with some possible clinical takeaways. Jeanette, how did these papers change your approach to teaching or managing cardiac arrest? I would start simple. So many of us who are healthcare providers teach ACLS and BLS. Let's start with low-lying fruit. And that when we teach CPR, we need to emphasize that, yeah, it can be super awkward to touch somebody's breast, but guess what? When we do CPR on people, it affects outcomes and it can save their life. So take a deep breath and sort of get over it. And to help with this conversation, I want to share with people this great project called the Womanikin Project, which is spelled mannequin with a W-O in front of it. And what this group did was develop a sweater vest with sewn-in breast cups. And the pattern is available free online. And this vest can then be fitted over any standard CPR torso so that students have a chance to practice CPR on a simulated female model and so that the instructors can help normalize the whole topic. That sounds like such an incredible project because I have to tell you, every time I've trained in CPR, it's been on a flat-chested plastic male mannequin. So simply transforming this into a female starts that conversation and hopefully dispels some of those misconceptions about doing CPR on a woman. All right. Well, hope you got something out of this EM Quick Hits podcast, whether that's adapting the varying cutoffs for D-dimer depending on the well score 
for ARDS using low tidal volumes, titrating peep just right, prone positioning, not routinely using paralytics in the ARDS patient, but considering it to maintain low tidal volumes, or maybe you've learned some clinical pearls about the various pharyngitis mimics, or all the different kinds of barotrauma from diving you can get, or some insights into the gender differences in cardiac arrest and MI care. For the next main episode podcast, we have two of the most experienced EM docs that I've ever had on EM cases, Walter Himmel and the mighty return of Brian Steinhardt. We're going to cover a topic that is fraught with misconceptions and pitfalls. I'll leave it at that. So until next time, take it easy.